Holy Father, we bow before you to thank you for your precious Holy Spirit. And Lord, even as those words come out of my mind, I'm reminded of what my dear friend Francis Chan wrote in his book entitled The Forgotten God. Just the very title of that book is convicting because it's so true. Although we say Holy Spirit, we talk about you. Oh God, I'd have to say that there's very little celebration of your power and presence in our hearts and lives. So Spirit of the living God, we pray that you will speak to our hearts today. Even as I talk about living by the Spirit, being controlled by your Holy Spirit, I pray for an unusual ability for all of us to concentrate. Oh God, you know we assign ourselves to frustration and mediocrity because we're not surrendered to the power of the third person of the Trinity who lives inside of our hearts and lives. I pray for holy freedom today, Father. I pray for those who are, who are laboring under an oppressive load of sin and maybe feeling as if they're carrying this ball and chain of guilt around, and even though they're believers, that this very day they will know the joy and power of the Holy Spirit. They will know the freedom of feeling and sensing the wind, not in front of them holding them back, but behind them pushing them toward Christ-likeness. We pray, God, that you'll do a great work in our hearts and lives. Thank you for your love and your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for coming out today. I didn't know, you know, these, these, these uh, Christmas seasons, when Christmas starts getting a little bit closer to Sundays, you got the one and done folks, if you know what I mean. And uh, so I'm just grateful that y'all showed up here uh, this morning. It's so, so good to see you. I trust that you had a great Christmas and uh, that you had some fun with your family and friends. We, we had to get up early, 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 early Christmas morning and drive over to Nashville. Our youngest son and his wife and three, uh, three, three granddaughters, his three little girls live there in Nashville. And... Uh, but my, my, my son said to our granddaughters, now, you know, you're not opening Christmas presents until Mimi and Papa get there. I said, I ought to choke you, boy. So that meant I had to get up before the chickens in order to get there to kind of like save our image. Don't want them to hate Mimi and Papa. So, but, but we, we really made it. I, um, I really wrestled in prayer about this last Sunday of 2015 and what I should talk about. And I sense that the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart to talk about him, the Holy Spirit. And I got to tell you, I almost feel like apologizing uh, to you. One of the things that has been very convicting to me is that uh, how little we talk and teach about the work in the ministry of the Spirit of God. Now, you know, in our brand of Christianity, we talk an awful lot about takeaways, we go through a passage, we make applications, and that's appropriate, that's wonderful. But I sometimes feel as if guys like myself make a terrible assumption, and yet the power to live the Christian life is found in and through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I got to tell you that biblically, this is the era, E-R-A, of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is dominant in the Christian community or meant to be dominant in the Christian community between now and the time that Jesus comes back. He is the agent of transformation, the agent of power and hope and life change and all of that. And it's embarrassing to me how little we talk about his work and his ministry. We use his name, but how does he relate to my life? What does the Bible teach about the work of the Spirit of God on a daily basis? What is his relationship to my choices and to my decisions? How, how, does, he, how does he function in terms of me gaining victory in the Christian life? And the average Christian has probably little to no clue about that. We're afraid of him because of some of the crazy stuff that we see on TV and the excesses about it, and we don't want to go down that road. So we live in this little no-man's land of mediocrity in the Christian life. So I want to ask you a question. How do you do life? I mean, how do you live? Who, who or what determines your decisions and choices on a daily basis? How, how do you handle adversity and opposition? Just grab a few little transactional statements and kind of like, you know, your best case scenario stuff and things that you used before and how you can get through this and this is the motivational tapes and maybe podcast your favorite speaker. What, what do you do with that? What about your future? How do you identify what's wrong in your heart and life and then how do you overcome it? Who does that? Is it just your insights and your ability to navigate through life and kind of like uh, articulate and analyze your current predicament and have good self-awareness? Is that what you do? Is that what we're left with? What's the difference between Christianity and great motivational organizations that power positive thinking and you can overcome if you think it and believe it, you can be it and do it. How are we different? What are we supposed to be like? Are we just a repository of good Bible and theology and seven keys to overcoming anger and four insights to taking away my lust and how to go through these steps to realize my personal habit? Is that what we're all about? How do we sustain joy? How do we overcome discouragement? How do we actualize and realize transformation? Is it just memorizing more Bible verses? I would remind you the Pharisees knew more Bible verses than all of us in this building together. And we need to do a better job. This old boy here needs to do a better job at this church of talking about and integrating the work and power of the Spirit of God into everything that we say and do because this indeed is the era of the Spirit of our living God. And I think through our silence and through our neglect or through a set of assumptions that we make, we've not celebrated the third person of the Trinity and his central focus and, and, and the central place he ought to have in, in our approach to the Christian life and his dominance 
in our reality. And we have replaced other good things like education, like biblical content, like counseling, and I'm not against any of that stuff. They have their place. We use them here, and I think it's great. But I think sometimes, sometimes we have shifted the dependence to process-related entities and not to the third person of the Trinity. And the power and the transformation and the sustaining of change and hope does not come by biblical accuracy alone. It comes by the work and the ministry of the Spirit of God. And so I want to take a look at two contrasting realities today. Uh, This could be a series, but I'm just going to land a plane today and sort of do a little waterfront um, insights into the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about two contrasting realities. On one hand, our condition, and on the other hand, paradoxically, our competence. Our condition and our competence. What is our condition apart from the control and the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to read a pretty lengthy passage of Scripture over here in Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 13 through the end of the chapter. This is the Apostle Paul's testimony, and I take issue with some people who want to who, who have a perfectionist view of the Christian life, and they want to suggest that what Paul is talking about here in these words that I'm about ready to read is his life before he became a Christian. That is categorical, absolute nonsense if you read the context. No, no, what Paul is talking about, he's speaking for every believer. And I happen to believe, quite frankly, quite frankly, 80 to 85% of professing Christians are probably in this paragraph right here in this section of scripture. This is the struggle. Listen to these words. I'm picking up in the middle of a thought. He's talking about the contrast to the law and the purpose of the law and what it revealed. So beginning at verse 13, did that which is good, meaning the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Here you have it, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So... I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's the anguish, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. How many of us can identify with this? Have you ever screamed out, oh God, oh God, who can deliver me from this this mess? 
I, I don't want to do this, but I find myself doing it. I know I should do that, but I can't get over there to do what is right. And Paul is speaking of the confliction that every believer at one point or another struggles with. Some of us right now, that's where we are. We, 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 we want to stop this stuff. There's something in me that, that I, I, I can't overcome and I know that I shouldn't do it, but I do it. Who's going to deliver me? Who's going to deliver me? See, what we need to understand in terms of our condition is that, one, we are exposed and opposed. Christianity is taking place, and our walk with God is taking place in the context of a fallen world, in the context of threat from within and without. In fact, the Bible outlines, if I had more time to do this, the Bible outlines the three forces that threaten our Christianity. And you've heard them before. These forces threaten our walk with God. Believers, it threatens our walk with God. Number one is the world. The world. Now, he's not talking about society and the structures of the system, but he's talking about the philosophy of the world. That's the reason why John said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Love not, love not, love not, love not, love not the world. He's speaking of a system. In fact, he's, he's talking about the fallen environment in which we live. This is not heaven where we're living out our lives. This is not heaven where we're walking around. This, this world is opposed to what we're all about. It's a, complete, a competing worldview. That's where we are. We live our Christianity there. And the world opposes us, and we're exposed to that. We've got to be intentional as believers. Yeah, we need a biblical worldview, don't get me wrong, but having accuracy without power ain't going to help you. We need more than just articulation. We need more than just analysis. We need more than just insight. Because he goes on to say in that paragraph, all that is in the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And that's where we are in every day of our lives. We're being seduced by the world system. It opposes us. The second thing that opposes us and we're exposed to, another enemy, is, is our flesh. This is our fallen reality. That's what Paul was describing there in that, uh, those last two paragraphs of Romans chapter 7. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? Uh, you can miss his point there. During the, during the time of Christ and during uh, Paul's time, when someone committed murder, a capital punishment, what they did as part of your punishment was to strap the corpse of that body to you. And he speaks of the flesh as being a putrefying thing that we carry with us. And I warn our church and want to warn you about this, about this, this, this perfectionist emphasis in theology that says once you come to Jesus, uh, uh, all of that stuff is completely taken away. Hogwash. That's not found in the Bible. Because we know Christ does not mean that, that uh, whatever you, you want to say, our Adamic nature, our flesh, or, or as Ryrie would call it, our capacity, whatever you want to call it, I like to term flesh, this, this thing that we have that's not yielded to Jesus will be yielded to what's wrong. And by the way, there's no neutrality here. There is no neutrality. 
If you choose not to be controlled by the Spirit of God, you have chosen to be victimized by your flesh. He said, I didn't make that decision. Well, you don't have to. It is a natural default mode of humanity. And so all those old desires and the temptations and the stuff, it is in us. The third enemy that we have is the devil. We're exposed and we're opposed by by the world, by our fallen reality, the flesh and the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 calls him our adversary. The point is this, he plans to destroy you and destroy me. You understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? The devil wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy your future. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy you. And our nice little Christian sayings and our little motivational speak and the little notes that we take on Sunday under the five ways to apply this message ain't going to necessarily help you. The enemy is out to get us. He is called our adversary. And not only that, the Apostle Paul says he has plans. And I really believe the context of Ephesians chapter 6, where he's talking about the armor of God. He's actually, he's when, he, when he says, when he, when he talks about in verse 6, to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand the schemes. Schemes, interesting Greek word. I really believe that he's talking about a personalized plan that the enemy has for each one of us. It's not just a general plan, but it is a personal plan, a personal business plan to off Crawford. And I say this not to alarm us or to scare us, but to get us to face reality. That we, 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 are, we are exposed and opposed by this world system that's not a friend of God's, by ourselves, our natural default mode is to drift from him, and by a devil who's coming after us. The other thing we need to be aware of uh, concerning our condition, the Bible is straightforward about this. Out from underneath the power and protection of the Holy Spirit, left to ourselves, we are weak and powerless. Don't kid yourself. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much education you have. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how much experience you have. You hear me today. Any believer out from underneath the protective power and control of the Holy Spirit is weak, vulnerable, and powerless. We cave into sin. It's no victory. No victory. Some of us have been wrestling with stuff forever. And I'm not talking about perfection, but we've been wrestling with the same mess that we've been dealing with 10 years ago. And we want to call it our thorn in the flesh. Perhaps it's not your thorn in the flesh. Perhaps there's victory for you, but you've been trying to manage your own holiness. And it's not working. It's just it's not working. You've been trying to scenario it and, you know, kind of like get advice about it. 
fellowship it, pray over it, but you can't get rid of it. We get frustrated because of our constant failure. Three steps forward, five steps backwards. And so what we end up doing is sanitizing new terms for sanctification to kind of like create a new normal so that I don't look spiritually dysfunctional. Yet underneath all of that, we're frustrated. We're discouraged. There's little or no joy. All this roller coaster stuff. Is there any victory in our lives? And we become overwhelmed. Why? Because we're always over our heads. Always over our heads. Always kind of like dragging anchor. This ball and chain. How come it's taking me so long to get better? Now again, don't hear me say perfectionism because I'm not talking about perfectionism. Yes, there's growth in the Christian life, but my goodness, my goodness, there is joy. There is victory. There is overcoming. And there is power that's made available to us. And I want you to write this down before I transition into our confidence. It's not on the screen, but I want you to write this down. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Some years ago, I finally came to this reality. I've been a believer since I was 13 and a half years old, and I'm 65 now, do the math. It's been a long time. But I want to tell you something. You and I will never, ever experience the fullness and power of the Spirit of God and, and victory in our lives until we come to grips with what I'm about ready to say to you right here. This is the key. Here it is. We have to accept and embrace a permanent reality. Here is our permanent reality. If you will not accept, embrace this permanent reality, y'all can just leave right now because this message doesn't mean anything to you. If you don't accept this permanent reality, this message means nothing to you. The, <coughs> excuse me, the permanent reality is that every second of our lives, we need desperately supernatural intervention. If you don't accept that, if you feel like you bring something to your Christianity, <coughs> if you feel like there's something in you that can gain victory in the Christian life, if you feel like you can help God out, it, you see, <coughs> I'm going to get into this in a second. The Holy Spirit does not control anyone who has any self-reliance about them. The Spirit of God only controls completely dependent people. And really the issue with the control of the Spirit of God is an issue of pride. It is really an issue of, 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 of abandonment to everything else that I trust. 
You see, that's the reason why God stands back. Hear me, hear me on this. This is the reason why God stands back from us and allows us to keep failing, keep falling on our face, keep falling on our face. Keep, and he said, are you kidding this? Are you kidding this, Crawford? Are you kidding it? There's not a second buddy in your life that you don't need my intervention. Not one. When you get it, I'll empower you. I'll help you. Like my brother did here, thank you. Yeah. But you follow what I'm trying to say here today? Do you follow me, church? Do you follow me? Do you see how insidious and dangerous self-reliance is? And so you can forget about talking about the ministry of the Spirit of God and the power of the Spirit of God if you're celebrating your own competence. If you keep shopping your resume and telling God how good you are and what you bring to the table, well, that's what you're going to have to deliver you. Good luck with that. So our condition is that we are, we, we are opposed by the world, fallen environment, our flesh, it still hovers around us, and the devil. Now, what is our competence? I probably should change the pronoun there because it's technically not our competence, it's his competence. Our competence is the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's the third person of the Trinity. Now, I want to make three observations about this, and then, and then I'll be done here. And, 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 you know, these, as I was preparing, these three things could be three messages in a series here. But let me give you three big top-line realities about the Holy Spirit's relationship to, to believers. The first one is this. The third person of the Trinity resides in us. Now, that ought to take our breath away right there. Did you, did you, did you just hear what I said? Listen to me. The Holy Spirit is not an influence. Did you hear me? It's not an, it's not an idea. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who is not just with us, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. He resides in us. Remember what Jesus says back in John chapter 14, verse, uh, what is that, 15 to, through, through 17? He's talking about going to the Father and sending another comforter, helper, parakletos is a Greek word, called alongside of to empower you. And notice the change in prepositions. Pay attention, pay attention. He said, he, he, he has been with you, but he shall be in you. He said, the third person of the Trinity, disciples, before, before I left, before I was ascended into heaven, the third person of the Trinity is with you, but on the day of Pentecost, when he comes to reside in the world, he's going to be in you. He is going to be in you. Let me say this. I want to put a little parentheses here to help us understand something. There are four realities that takes place relative to the Holy Spirit the moment you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Four realities. And uh, they, it's the acronym RIBS. You can remember it along this acronym here, RIBS. Four realities. At the moment of salvation, the moment you said yes to Jesus, these four realities relative to the Holy Spirit takes place. You don't necessarily feel anything, but it happens. Number one, we're regenerated by the Spirit. It gives us new life. 
He is the author of transformation, regeneration. You're born again by the Spirit of God. The second word is indwelled, R-I. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, sometimes we get a little sloppy with terms. Don't ask the Holy Spirit if you are follow Jesus to indwell you. If you ask him to indwell you, you just said that you're not a believer. No, he indwells us at the moment of salvation. All of the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's not only with us, he is inside of us. The third person of the Trinity is there in your heart and life, in my heart and life. The third word is be baptized. We're baptized by the Spirit of God. At the moment of salvation, we're placed in union with Christ and we're placed in the body of Christ. For by one Spirit have we all been baptized by the Spirit of God. It is our view at the church here that baptism is not a separate work. It doesn't come later on. You don't get baptized by this first get saved and then you plead and ask God to baptize you with the Spirit and have some emotional experience. No, that takes place at Calvary. And the fourth letter is S, sealed. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians chapter 1 until the day of redemption. It's the down payment that we belong to him. So he regenerates us, he indwells us, he baptizes us, he seals us. And that's what happened to every last one of us when we said yes to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is living inside of our hearts and lives. And so, so the third person of the Trinity resides in us. The second reality relative to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit not only resides in us, but we have access to supernatural power. That sort of is obvious. He's not just there as, as some past experience or theoretical reality. He lives in our lives. It sounds so terribly pedestrian, but he lives in our lives so that we might access that power. Uh, uh, John chapter 7, Jesus, the last day of the Passover feast, that great feast. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 37. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you hear what he's saying? If you believe in me, you believe in me. He's connecting that in context with the works that he did and the miracles that he did. And it's, and it's a reference to power. If you believe in me, you trust me, I guarantee you, out of your innermost being will come rivers of living water. That's the power of the Spirit showing itself operative in our daily, in our daily lives. So the third person of the Trinity resides in us. We have access to the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, and this is where I want to land the plane and spend a little time on, the Spirit's control, get this, is released through active surrender. We can know all of this stuff. We're regenerated, indwelt, baptized, and sealed. We do have access to them. But the question is, how do we access the power of the Spirit of God? How do we access the power of the Spirit of God? And I don't mean to sound elitist here. I said this earlier, but I really do believe that 80 to 85%, just, just my Christian experience of believers 
don't experience the filling and control of the Spirit of God on a daily basis. I think that's true. I think it's true. My experience all these 40, what, four years in ministry and all, all, all my, my experience has verified that. So the question is, what do we do? Well, the statement I just made is the answer, the Spirit's control is released through active surrender. Now, in the, in the New Testament, these two big commands relative to the Holy Spirit, and I don't know why we don't preach on this more, why this old dude doesn't preach on it more. Two big commands. Now, notice, notice, wake up. They're not suggestions. Did you hear what I said? This is not good advice. These are commands. The first one is Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, walk by, preposition, walk by the Spirit. You say, what does he mean, walk by the Spirit? Well, that's a colloquialism that Paul uses, a little slang expression when he refers to the lifestyle of of the believers. It's the Greek term peripateo, go as you live your life. I want your life to be driven and lived by means of the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. In other words, he, he's actually telling us you got to make a choice. And in that context, he's talking about you can choose to, the, to be dominated by the flesh or you can choose to walk by the Spirit. We have to choose whose power we're going to use. Whose power are we going to use? Um, ours or the Holy Spirit's? How has your power been working for you? Have you been able to overcome that mess in your life? Have you been able to experience consistent cleansing? And so he turns to the church, he says, listen, listen. The reason why you can't experience victory is because I never intended for you to do it on your own. The Spirit of God lives inside of you To enable you, Crawford, walk by the Spirit. The second command that he gives to us is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or dissipation, the New American Standard Version says. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want to give a, a, a literal English translation of the Greek there. It says... And be not drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But literally in the Greek text it says, but be being filled with the Spirit. I'm going to make three observations and come back and I'm going to say a word about the word fill. This is very important stuff here. The first observation I want us to to notice is what I just hammered away at a second ago, is that this is a command. It's not a suggestion. He says, and be not drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Spirit. The import of that is simply this. Now, hear me on this. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Since it is a command, what Paul is saying is simply this. Any follower of Jesus Christ who is not knowingly, willingly submitted to the control of the Holy Spirit is living in sinful disobedience to God. It's a command. It's a command. You don't ignore commands. 
You don't say, ah, mm, that doesn't have my address on it. That's not where I'm at. You know, it's not, it, it just doesn't relate to me. It doesn't have my dynamics. It's not my authenticity. Seriously? It's a command. The second thing I want us to notice is that it's continuous. And be not drunk with wine. And here, here's, here, here's, here's what it says in Greek sake. But be being filled. Be being filled. Notice the moment-by-moment reliance on the Spirit of God. There is a sense of urgency in the verbs there. It, it's, it's, you, you, but be being filled right in this moment, right now, uh, right now, critically, uh, at this point in history, Crawford, you, you've got to be controlled by the Spirit of God. There's never a moment in your life where you don't need supernatural intervention. Right now. It also hints at the fact that the filling of the Spirit is fragile. I said, yeah, yeah, it is. Any moment there's self-reliance or any moment that there's sin in our lives, you're no longer filled with the Spirit. Because purity and dirt cannot occupy the same space. Anytime we get out from yieldedness and pressing into and surrender... We're no longer filled by the Spirit of God. The third observation I'd like to make about that simple verse is that it's command. It is continuous, but it is also controlling. Where do you get that from? Well, notice the, the imagery, the analogy that he uses. And be not drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Spirit. What he's saying there is that, and you know, there's a wine God. The, the Ephesians got it more than we do. There's a wine God by the name of Dionysus, and they, they got that quicker than we did. Well, what, what he's saying is just as a controlled substance alters your behavior, alters who you are, allow the Spirit of God to change you. And by the way, that line, for that's dissipation or debauchery or whatever, if that's going to be over. The Spirit of God, if we continue to yield to him, he will make permanent changes in our hearts and in our lives. That's what he, uh, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit there is character transformation that comes by consistently walking in the Spirit. Now, I want to get back to the word fill, and we'll land a plane on this. Fill, fill, fill. But be filled with the Spirit. Uh, unfortunately, there's an unfortunate implication of being filled, because you might think that, okay, okay, well, that means that I ask the Holy Spirit, I get more of the Holy Spirit to come in and to fill up, right? Well, no, no, no. That's not how that word is used. In fact, let me just say something a second. That's not how the word is used. It's not getting more of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a little cliche, but the Holy Spirit having more of us. He is present, but he wants to be preeminent. The filling of the Spirit is allowing the Holy Spirit to be preeminent. Now, let me, let me give you two, two, two implications from this word. Um, um, it implies two things. It's a Greek word, pleru, 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 English transliteration, P-L-E-R-O-O, pleru, pleru. That word has been, it's used to uh, imply pressure and dominance, pressure and dominance. Pressure in the sense, um, it's the idea of, of sails on a sailboat, on a ship. Karen and I last year spoke at this uh, marriage cruise uh, 
It was amazing. It was a clipper ship, and we went up deck, and it's one of the most spectacular things in the world to see them hoisting the sails. The wind is already, the wind is already out there. You hoist the sails to catch the pressure of the wind, and that wind drives. It fills the sails, so to speak, and it drives the ship forward. Now, we need to stop pressing into life and turn around and allow the Holy Spirit to drive us through life. That's the point. We need to stop and get on our knees and turn around and yield to him and allow him to drive us to where he wants us to be. The second implication of play rule is domination. It's the idea of total control. There's an interesting uh, illustration of this in Luke chapter 5, verse 26, after Jesus had healed the paralytic. The text says the people were astonished, and here's this line, and they were filled, play rue. They were filled with awe. Awe. I, uh, I sometimes, well, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook because, you know, I, I got stuff to do, but I sometimes just sort of go through Facebook and, 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 I'll, and I'll, stop at, I'll stop at young couples that I know that just got married. <laughs> and I love reading their posts. Borders on idolatry. <laughs> and it's like, they are so, oh God, some of them I read, I go, ah! <laughs> you know? I mean, it's all this love stuff. I say, ain't had the first crisis yet. Wait till the babies come. <laughs> Got to work on the love piece. You know, but, but it's the idea they're, they're so dominated in a wonderful sense and controlled. That's the idea. The Spirit of God says to us, I don't, I don't want to hurt you. I want to control you. I want to deliver you. I want to give you joy. I want to transform you. I want to mark your moment in history with supernatural grace and power and strength. Why won't you let me do that? Why, 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 why do you insist on controlling your own life? Why do you assign yourself to this roller coaster existence? Why don't you just come, Crawford? I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Filling of the Spirit is not very difficult. God commanded us to be controlled by the Spirit. It's a command. And unfortunately, with all the crazy teaching that's gone out there and on and all this stuff, you don't have to fall on your face and plead for the Holy Spirit to baptize you to come in. You don't have to speak in some unknown language. You don't have to do any of that kind of thing. You don't, you don't have to go down that path. 
You have to beg God to do this, God. I'm holding on. Do it, do it. No, you have to do any of that. It's as simple and as easy. And what might be different, here's the difficult piece. The difficult piece is the decision to surrender. Now, that, 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 that's a hard one. That can be hard. But the moment you say you confess your sin to the Lord. In fact, I'd like for us to bow our heads right now. All of us. And if you want the Spirit of God to control you, it's simple. Just confess to him. Turn from any sin that he brings to your mind. Whether it's greed, lust, jealousy, whatever it might be, confess it to him and you've got to release it. He's not playing games. He's not going to control us if we're not willing to give over that which is wrong to him. Just confess it. And then you can pray any prayer of yieldedness that you might feel led to pray, any words, or maybe something like this, Lord Jesus, I lay aside self-reliance. And I thank you for giving me your precious Holy Spirit. Spirit of the living God, control me and fill me. And he will do it. He will do it. You don't have to feel anything. But I want to encourage you. The filling of the Spirit leaks. The moment we get back to self-reliance, I pray to be filled with the Spirit, and within 10 minutes, something happens, and old Crawford raises his ugly head, and I go, Lord, I'm sorry. But when the Spirit of God brings that to your mind, you confess it immediately and claim by faith his control. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for your precious Holy Spirit. Thank you, O God, that he is here. Forgive us, O God, for not only not acknowledging his presence, but what's worse, forgive us for not surrendering ourselves and yielding ourselves to his control. Lord God, I pray in the name of your son that this reality will spread like wildfire through our church, that we will know the joy of the spirit-filled life the fruit of the Spirit will blossom in and through us. And that we will be those who are not ashamed to be delightfully dependent upon you because we know there's not a second in our lives that we don't need supernatural intervention. So Spirit of the living God, fall fresh in us, we pray. Now, Father, dismiss us from this place. Give us great joy. Lord, as we continue perhaps to interact with family members and friends, and I just pray that this will be a sweet time. We love you, Lord Jesus. Bless your name for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.